Father, we thank you for the blood. The blood of Jesus poured out on the cross of Calvary for our sins. Jesus, we thank you for your death and your burial and your resurrection and the promise of ours. And we pray your blessing as we talk about that now in Jesus' name, amen. Good evening. So we are building a case, if you will, although I don't even like to, like we have to prove something, but we are putting together an understanding of the rapture of the church and specifically of the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. We started into it last week. I think we got in, got like three of 12 points. And so that was when I realized we need some time. And as I've looked at this over a bit of time now, um, I'm content to just take our time. And I'm, I'm hoping and praying that uh, we'll be caught up before we're done. <laughs> That's the plan. So we could go another week or we could go a few weeks because we don't know the day or the hour, right? Romans 13, 11 says, it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Wait a minute, what does that mean? Salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Well, I was saved when I was 10 years old, right? I mean, I'm assuming many of you came to Jesus, came to faith in Jesus. If you haven't yet, please talk to me before you leave tonight, but you came to Jesus at some point in your life and you could say, I got saved, I am saved, I'm among the saved. But Paul writes, Paul himself, a saved individual, unquestionably, it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed, as though salvation isn't quite yet here. Well, then 1 Corinthians, and if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there first. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 in the New Testament, and again, brace yourself. Now, there aren't as many verses up because I'm not even putting up all the verses of all the notes that go to the end of this study. This is just for tonight. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 41, then goes on. Paul says, there's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, Paul says, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual's not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, is from the earth, earthy. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we, also will, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So again, back to he, he's talking about, he's giving a picture here of resurrection, of a resurrected body, of a spiritual body versus the natural, physical, earthly body. And he's not saying they're a different body, but it's the body, the earthly body that is transformed into the 
heavenly body. And what Paul is talking about in, throughout 1 Corinthians 15 is resurrection. Resurrection. Verse 42 again. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so in Ephesians, or sorry, Romans 13, 11, what I started with, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And now in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about resurrection, salvation, resurrection. When does that happen? Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. That is the dead you know that word, dead, necros, the corpse will be raised imperishable at the last trumpet. And we will be changed. That is from the earthly to the heavenly. What I'm getting at here is so important and it really hit me. So this is the big revelation for Rick this week. Last week, it was the personal nature of the rapture. This week, here it is, listen to me. The rapture of the church is not radical. This is not fringe teaching, out there on the edge, weirdo theology, the rapture of the church is rooted in the very heart of the gospel itself. This is our theology. If you believe in the resurrection of the saints, you believe in the rapture of the church. For the rapture of the church, and I keep using the word rapture, it's an easy word to use. I know the word rapture is not in the English translation of the Bible. I get that. Raptus in the Latin, harpazo in the Greek, caught up. But the reality is the catching up is that moment. It is the moment we realize salvation. I know I'm saved right now, but I will realize that salvation in the twinkling of an eye, in my resurrection. So regardless of, of whether a church teaches the rapture or ignores the rapture or anything, if a church or if a pastor or if a Christian talks about their resurrection, talks about their salvation, guess what? You're talking about the rapture of the church. You are talking about the harpazo, the being caught up. The rapture is salvation. It is that moment where salvation is realized. It is that moment where resurrection happens. And by the way, and we kind of came to this earlier today, uh, it's not just transportation. It is transformation. It's not just a blink of an eye, twinkle of an eye, move from here to there. The move is the glorification of this fleshly body instantly in the twinkling of an eye. It's the glorification of the dead in Christ who have died and are now rising first. And it's so fast, we will, I mean, the twinkle of an eye, has anybody tried to measure that? It is so blazing fast, but that's the moment it all happens. So it's not just like getting on a holy bus and moving up to heaven real quickly. It is the transformation of our physical state into our eternal state. Like Enoch, you remember Enoch in Hebrews 11 verse five, we talked about how Enoch was taken up and the word taken up is uh, metatithomai, if I'm remembering correctly. And it means literally either translation or again, Cheryl, what's the musical word? I, I, I'm spacing on it today. Yeah, at home? Now you don't remember. Transposed. I'm being transposed. Like from one chord change to another, or I am being translated as from one language to another. Still me, right? But I'm being 
glorified. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27 says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men. And by the way, this verse isn't up there, so I'm throwing in some extras for you. Free of charge tonight. Hebrews 9, 27, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment, so Christ also, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, i.e. judgment, having taken judgment, will appear a second time for salvation without sin to those who eagerly await him. That appearance for salvation is the rapture. That's the moment we're caught up. We're resurrected. We're changed. We receive our heavenly bodies. Passed away, in, dead in Christ, or alive right now, or alive when he calls, that's when it happens. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, listen, transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. When does this transformation take place? It's the rapture. So you can call it the rapture. You can call it the resurrection. You can call it salvation. This is the moment that it is realized when we are caught up. And it can happen at any time, which is thrilling it is comforting and encouraging if you are in Christ. It's convicting if you're not or if you are not letting your family and friends know. It can happen at any time. Now, I'm gonna speak more on that in just a second here. But the questions poured in last week, and thank you. I, I just, Cheryl can tell you, I enjoy this stuff. I really do. I love I love the challenging questions and the difficult ones and the ones that make me scratch my head and then I have to go back and study more, which blesses me. So thank you. Thank you for those you know, watching uh, on YouTube who, who I got several email questions from people who were watching at home or watching from other states. I got questions from you here. I got some questions that were tucked up under my Bible on Sunday morning. I'm like, ooh, a little surprise. <laughs> Great stuff. And we're gonna, I'm gonna try and work some of the questions actually into the teaching tonight, and I'm gonna have time at the end again for more Q&A. So if you think of something, if, we're, if I'm talking about this and you're like, hey, well, what about this? Write it down, jot it down, and, and we'll see if we can answer it at the end. But I wanna answer this question first because something uh, caught me off guard. And that's the idea of the doctrine of imminence. Remember we talked about that last week? The doctrine of imminence. The question is, do you really believe in the doctrine of imminence? And my immediate answer, well, of course I do. Depending on how it's translated or, or how it's explained. Meaning what? Carefully listen to this. Scholar Thomas Ice says, imminence in relation to the rapture has been defined as consisting of three elements. Number one, the certainty that he may come at any moment. Number two, the uncertainty of the time of that arrival, no one knows the day or the hour, and number three, the fact that no prophesied event stands between the believer and that hour. So if that's your definition of the doctrine of imminence or of imminence, I say yes, I accept that. I believe that because that's what the Bible teaches in all three instances. We know he may come at any moment. We don't know when. And at the same time, we know that every single thing that has been prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures that needed to happen before the rapture of the church has happened. 
And that's compelling because that truly means there's nothing that has to take place that we have to wait for before the rapture happens. Some people say, well, didn't Jesus say something about that the word has to be preached to the whole earth and then the end will come? We'll get to that later. But I believe that Jesus is coming imminently. And and in that definition of imminence, yes, I accept that. However, the true doctrine of imminence as stated is different. And I wanna explain this. Dr. Steven Anderson, uh, you can find his writing in truthonlybible.com, which is not my endorsement personally. I don't know enough about him other than what I read that was sent to me along with the question of the doctrine of imminence. And I read through this, it was 40 or 50 pages. And as I read through that, I realized, okay, there are some things this guy's really, he's really nailing it. And there are some other things I didn't agree with. Um, But the doctrine of imminence, he says, encompasses the following points. Number one, so far as anyone is able to know, the rapture could happen today or it could happen in the distant future. Now, I would add in the not too distant future, but that point is is accepted. It could happen today. It could happen before we're done tonight or at some point between now and then. But as Paul said, we are nearer to it now than when we first believed. Secondly, the rapture has been imminent in this sense ever since the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two. So that the rapture has always been an imminent possibility to which I would have to say, nope, that's not true. Hold that thought. Thirdly, he says, there are no prophecies that must be fulfilled before the rapture can occur. I say, yes, absolutely. Then he goes on to say, nor have there been ever since the rapture first became imminent. No, that's not true. Again, hold that thought. Number four, because the rapture is not preceded by prophetic signs, it will come as a surprise. That is, There will be no way of knowing when the rapture will happen before it happens, which I started to agree with, and then he said, not even in a general sense, to which I say, I disagree. Because Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse two, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky that cannot discern the signs of the times? My point is this, no, we cannot know the day or the hour, but we better know the season and the times. We should have a clear bead on the fact that we are living in the last days, and I add the last of the last days. We should be able to look around and go, look at what has happened. Now, check this out. At this point in the church age, every prophecy that needed to be fulfilled before the rapture can happen has been fulfilled, every single one. And we don't know the day or the hour, but we know we have now surpassed all prophecy that must take place. However, it has not always been that way. There are New Testament prophecies that came after Pentecost that had to be fulfilled before the rapture would happen. What do you mean? The Holy Spirit told Paul, I need you to go back to Jerusalem. Well, if he had to go back to Jerusalem, then the Spirit is telling Paul, the rapture's not gonna happen at least until after you go back to Jerusalem. There were specific prophecies given, specific things spoken in the New Testament that had to take place. Simple things, but within that time frame, before the rapture could happen, something else had to take place. 
And I'll come to that in a little bit. But I repeat, the rapture of the church is not a fringe theology. It is the fulfillment of the gospel. It's the fulfillment of the gospel. This whole idea of imminency, yes, it could happen at any time. Yes, we don't know the day or the hour, but we ought to be aware of the times in which we live. What Chuck Missler used to call the times of the signs because so many have been fulfilled in this generation, so many things that we can point to and say, that had to happen. And now that that's happened, nothing else has to happen. So again, I will come back to that. I will explain what I mean by that. But I wanna ask a question before I go any further. And, and this, is, this is different study for me because normally we're, we're moving verse by verse in a book and we finish a verse and go on to the next one. And I'm, I'm trying not to rabbit trail. I really wanna stay on this concept of the rapture, but I also wanna answer questions as we go. So let me just ask this question. Why isn't the rapture on the radar of at least the majority of Christians? Understanding what, what we started out with tonight, what I already shared with you, and that is the rapture is, is at the heart of the gospel. The rapture is the resurrection. The rapture is our salvation. The rapture is the moment when it happens. If that's true, and the Bible's pretty explicit about this, why isn't it talked about in every church? Why isn't this a common theme among pastors teaching the word of God? I, I picked up this article this week. Interesting that it just came out this week. Actually, it was on uh, uh, Olive Tree Ministries with Jan Markell, and she pointed this out. And then I, I went from there, and I followed the article and followed the link, and I printed out the article. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is written by a guy named Jonathan Brentner. And listen to what he says. Fascinating. Somewhere in the past, a tragic divorce occurred. Theologians decided we must separate the return of Jesus for his church from the proclamation of the gospel. The results of this untimely divorce have led to a dearth of understanding among believers regarding Jesus appearing and the joyful anticipation that comes with such awareness. Confused believers hear that they will surely die rather than meet Jesus in the air, which directly contradicts the New Testament in passages such as 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. The Apostle Paul believed there would be many saints alive at the time of the rapture. And I told you last week, he thought he'd be one of them all the way until he was on death row and realized the time of his departure was very near. But many preachers today disagree with Paul on this matter. Many New Testament texts connect Jesus' imminent appearing for his church with the gospel hope of the believer. And he lists several that were all on the, on the list last week. Jesus' imminent appearing and our receipt of immortal, imperishable bodies were essential elements of the gospel preached to the early saints. Remember last week I told you, you don't have to go to the 1800s and John Nelson Darby or Margaret MacDonald, who, who really popularized looking more seriously at the rapture in the Bible at that time, go all the way back to the first or to the second century, to people like Irenaeus, who we know was talking about the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. But I say forget all of them, just go to the Bible. 
which talks about a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. So he asked the question, why has this changed so drastically in our day? The consequences of such negligence have been tragic, and it has resulted in, and he gives these headings, and I'll just give you the headings. Number one, a near blackout of teaching about the rapture. I have heard from more of you this week that I have never been in a church that talks about the rapture. This is the first time I've heard about the rapture. And I go, what? And then I remember, oh yeah. First time I heard the rapture preached was when we started the bridge and I preached it. That really, I'm not kidding. <laughs> a near blackout of teaching on the rapture. Um, a diversion of the believer's focus to earthly aspirations. See, if, you don't, if you're not heavenly minded, if you're earthly minded, then that's gonna be your focus. And hey, if I'm just gonna die, I might as well do as much as I can now while I'm living before I die and then enter that generic haze of death and then what happens, who really knows? My pastor won't tell me, so I'm just gonna live for now. And far too many Christians are caught up living for today because there's no sense of, of the rapture of the church, of being caught up, of being with Jesus, of, of coming back in the millennial kingdom. That's not talked about. And we don't know where we're going. We're just gonna sit right where we are in the here and now. In fact, it's what we talked about earlier, Brandy. The idea that I'm gonna live for now. Okay, it's a diversion to an earthly focus, an earthly aspiration. How about this one? Not talking about the rapture of the church or divorcing it from the teaching of the gospel? Number three, leads to an open door to wokeism in the church and the eroding of gospel purity. The immorality that is pervasive in the church and the church's very bland acceptance of what we would call woke ideas in culture today, you can directly relate that to the fact that the church doesn't teach the rapture. Because the church is not teaching the whole counsel of God. The church is not teaching the gospel if the rapture, if being caught up, if our resurrection isn't focused on. An open door to wokeism in the church. It says the abandonment of justification by faith in the church began centuries earlier than the Dark Ages when the allegorization of biblical texts related to the millennial promises God made to Israel began to happen. And that happened with a guy named Augustine. Remember him? Origen. The Alexandrian school of theology. This is around the fourth or fifth century. They began to say, hey, things are going pretty well now, so perhaps we were wrong about that whole thing and we need to look at this allegorically and we are now in the kingdom. The problem is, a thousand years down the line, when the clock ticked over to 1001 AD, suddenly we're beyond a thousand years. Well, that's allegory too, they say. Allegory makes it really easy to believe whatever you want. You can make the scripture say whatever you want if it's all allegory. What's the next one? Silence regarding our joyous, blessed hope. The message of the gospel is this. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended to heaven, and is coming again to give us imperishable, immortal bodies and to take us to the place he has prepared for us. Does that sound bad to anybody here tonight? Isn't that wonderful? I mean, tell your faces, if that sounds good to you, 
I mean, my goodness, this is, this is why it's called the blessed hope. This is our blessing. It's what we're looking forward. It's what we long for. Yes, it'll all be good. This is what's promised. But if we don't talk about it, where's the hope? Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 calls it our living hope. Well, anyway, I'll, I'll leave that. You can look that up uh, at uh, jonathanbrentner.com if you want to find that, that article. Point is that this ought to be on our radar, that this is vital for us to understand. And that's why, again, I'm, I've slowed up on this. We're just gonna take our time and walk it through. Last week, so let's review real quickly. Last week, we talked about, I think we got through three points. We talked about at first, the personal catch. Remember the rapture is being caught up. So the personal catch, I remind you, this is personal to Jesus and it ought to be personal to us. Matters to him personally. As he says, I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. 25. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Shouldn't it therefore be personal to us if it's that personal to him? If he's saying, you're coming to me, you're gonna be with me. And he's not talking about some nondescript cloud somewhere. Jesus, after saying that, John chapter 11, went on to raise Lazarus from the dead, who, by the way, would die again. I don't know what funeral insurance does with that. <laughs> well, we paid once. You're back for more? How? Maybe that's why Jesus wept. Maybe it's because he knew that while he was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus would die yet again. And Jesus hates death. Always has. Death is not God's desire for you or for me. Jesus is no fan. He never met a funeral or a burial he didn't interrupt. We see this time and time again in the Gospels where he's interrupting the very work of death itself, including his own. He couldn't even stay dead. When three days later, he came out of the tomb and it is Jesus again who says, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you will be also. And that is you, church, us all together collectively. And that is you personally because this is personal to Jesus, the personal catch. Secondly, the power lift. I won't spend any time on that. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, that that passage where we get the word rapture harpazo caught up and that describes how God does it. That is so, so specific too. It's amazing. Start at verse 13, read through verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4. It is absolutely specific as to how God is gonna do this, as to what we should expect it to be. And then he ends that passage of the power lift saying, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Third thing we looked at was all of the pre-tribulation precedents. Pre-tribulation rapture precedents. We looked in the Hebrew scriptures at Enoch, Lot, Isaac, Elijah, Daniel. And we did some more, but I made a point during the Q&As that Israel is under a different dispensation, and I got a question about that. So I want to stop right here. I know we still haven't even gotten into the study tonight. Hang with me. But someone misunderstood me, and I, and I really need to clarify this. The question, I would put something like this. You indicated that Jesus' blood might not apply to pre-cross Jews. 
No, I did not. No, I did not. Someone was confused about, I, because I made the statement that Israel is under a different dispensation or administration or organization than the church. There are two different dispensations. Right now, we are in the dispensation of the church age where God is dealing with the church. He's not dealing with Israel because the clock stopped. But very quickly, the time is coming again when he will deal with Israel and be focused on the people of Israel and on the nation of Israel and on his promises to Israel. But someone got confused in this saying, well, wait, so, because the question that, that we looked at was, Will Jewish people from the Hebrew scriptures, will they be caught up when we are? Will they be part of the rapture? Now, technically, yes, because technically they have, they will have their resurrection. The only question that I added in there was, would their resurrection be simultaneous with ours or not? I don't know. And the only reason I don't know is because Israel is not the church. Let me confuse you a little more. If a Jewish person becomes a Christian, Hank, they are no longer Jew. Oh, I understand, in the flesh and culturally, granted, okay. My brother Hank is no longer a Jew any more than I am any longer a Gentile. We're Christians. Hank is in the church. So Hank, because he's Jewish, and I'm sorry to pick on you, bro, but I think you're the only one among us who has a Jewish history right now, background. Uh, but when the rapture happens, Hank's not gonna be going, oh, come on! <laughs> I have to be in that dispensation? No, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you're the church. Which means that starting from the resurrection of Jesus forward, every Jew, all the, the first century church, which was largely Jewish in Jerusalem, that's the church, raptured. The dead in Christ, ever since then, any Jewish person who comes to faith in Jesus and then dies doesn't then wait for the dispensation of Israel. They are going to be raptured with the church. Now, will Abraham, uh, Daniel, Isaiah, Sarah, Rahab, Ruth, well, Ruth's a Gentile, so we'll leave her out. But will all of these, all of these pre-Jesus Hebrews and or Jewish people, will they be saved by faith? Yes, 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 yes. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover all people who die in faith. But will they be caught up in the rapture of the church? And the only hitch I put to that is, is Paul says the dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them to meet the Lord. The dead in Christ. Yes, it is the blood of Jesus that saves all people, even the Jewish people who died in faith before Jesus came. His blood is what saves them and their faith in God and in his promised Messiah, that will save them. But I just raised the possibility that when the rapture happens, that they might not at that time be resurrected. Later on tonight, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back around to that and suggest that perhaps, yeah, they are gonna go up at the same time, 
But I'm just trying to be honest as we're studying through this, there's some things I'm still grappling with myself. The bottom line is this, so let's just be really clear. John 14, six, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, and that's pretty all-encompassing, no one comes to the Father but through me, Jew or Gentile. Abraham didn't die believing in Yeshua, he died believing in Yahweh who promised Yeshua, who promised in the Hebrew, Yesha, salvation. So what about Abraham? His faith was credited to him as righteousness, and when Jesus died, that righteousness was, in, was given, and Abraham saved. And there's a whole topic that we could do on what happens when you die, and maybe we'll tack that on to the end of this, what's gonna be a very long rapture study. <laughs> Jesus' blood is always sufficient to save all who call on his name and all who have died in faith. 1 John 2, verse two, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, which is John's way of saying, there's enough blood to cover everyone who dies in faith. So let me be absolutely clear. What I said was the rapture, which applies to those who died in Christ, may be specifically for the church, while the resurrection of Old Testament saints may not happen until the kingdom, which would be seven years later. It's possible that they will be resurrected for the kingdom at that point. It's also possible they'll be resurrected right when we are at the rapture of the church and then we'll come back all together for the kingdom. It's possible either way. It's just a timing issue. It's not a salvation issue. It's not a sufficiency of the blood of Christ issue. I do not doubt or question either the sufficiency of the blood of Christ or the salvation of of Israel. In fact, Paul writes in Romans eleven twenty five, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's the dispensation we're in right now. Israel partially hardened, the fullness of the Gentiles, the church age is coming in. And he says, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Any Jewish people stepping, any Jewish person, any Hebrew person, and y'all even have to make a distinction there because Jewish really refers to going back to the tribe of Judah and the kingdom of Judah. So prior to that, it's Hebrew, which would include all of the Hebrew people. But altogether, God is going to save his people. Are there any Jews or Hebrews who are lost? And the answer is yes. In the same way that there are Gentiles who are lost. Because there's only one way to the Father and that is through Jesus. It's faith. Now, having thoroughly lost half of you, as long as we're here, still here and we're still talking about the, reviewing pre-tribulation precedents, we saw many in the Hebrew scriptures, let me add one more. Let me throw in one more that we didn't talk about last week. It also speaks of how personal this really is. It's in the Song of Songs, chapter two, verse 10. This was brought to my attention. Hey, Rick, you talked about this before. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So just listen to this, or you can turn there if you want to really fast. Song of Songs, chapter two, verse 10. And this is the groom is singing. It's a song back and forth between the bride and the groom, much of, if not most, of Song of Songs. And in verse 10, my beloved responded, says the bride, and said to me, and now here says the groom, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers have already appeared in the land, the time has arrived for pruning. The voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. What is the dove a picture of in the scriptures? What, say, yell it out. Some said peace. It's the Holy Spirit. The dove is a sign of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit rested on Jesus as a dove at his baptism. And the song sings, the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. Let me ask you this question. Has the voice of the Holy Spirit been heard in our land? I think so. I hope you could answer in the affirmative. Absolutely. Starting at Pentecost, has the voice of the Holy Spirit, has the voice of the dove, has the voice of the turtle dove been heard in our land? And then verse 13, we get a little more compelling. The fig tree has ripened its figs. And the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. And so after that, after the voice of the turtle dove is heard, after the fig tree reappears and ripens its figs, after all of that, all of a sudden, he says, arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. He says, oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form, let me hear your voice for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. There's this picture of come away, come away. Could that be, might that be another Old Testament precedent picture of the rapture of the church? I suggest that it is. We also talked about in these precedents, now we talked about um, in the Hebrew scriptures, rooms prepared. And we talked about the verse in Isaiah, right? And Linda added a verse to it, which I didn't give her permission to do. She just blurts it right out. And I'm so glad she did. I wanna read it to you again tonight. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake. Shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn. And the earth will give birth to the departed spirits, Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation, indignation, tribulation, runs its course. And we talked about that. Verse 20 there in Isaiah 26 is a picture of the rapture. Well, verse 19 begins, your dead will live. Who's dead? The prophet is speaking to Judah. So going back on what I said earlier about perhaps at a different time, if this, if this is a subtle indication of the rapture, Judah's included and then would be at the same time. Now, if I sound like I'm flip-flopping, it's not a John Kerry thing, I'm just trying to say <laughs> there are two possibilities here, but if Isaiah 26, 19, 20, and 21 are an indication of the rapture of the church, God is including Judah in that moment, which would then solve the problem, wouldn't it? That there are rooms prepared, not just for the church, but also for faithful Israel, who would then be included with the dead in Christ. It would be those who died in faith that Jesus supplied salvation for, and we all go. 
In the New Testament, we talked about rooms prepared 2.0. Actually, it's the same rooms, John 14, one, in my Father's house are many rooms, Jesus said. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. We continued on with the precedence in the New Testament. We talked about that mini rapture of Philip. Acts chapter eight, where he just pops from, from working with the Ethiopian eunuch, suddenly he's gone and he's raptured over to another city. And the word rapture is used there in Acts 8, 39 and 40. Paul talks about being caught up in 2 Corinthians 12, verse two, and that word rapture, harpazo, is used there as well. More compellingly, Jesus himself was raptured. Let me give you one distinction between the rapture slash resurrection of Jesus and the rapture slash resurrection of us. Here's the only distinction. His happened 50 days apart or 40 days apart. That is, he resurrected and walked out of the tomb and then when he ascended, he was raptured. For us, it's a twinkle of an eye. So we're not gonna walk out of the tomb and be like, 40 days It just all happens at once, okay? More on that in a minute as well. So there's one more compelling verse for the rapture of Jesus, and I told you last week we'd get to it. Well, wait for it. We will get to it. Probably not tonight. The personal catch, the power lift, the pre-trib precedent. So we went on over all of those. Let me go on to the next point now. Are you ready for it? We're only, I don't know how far into this, 40 minutes. So the next point in as we are making our list Number four, we're gonna answer another question that came up. So this is a new point that I stuck in here. What about the children? What about children? What about kids in the rapture of the church? And so number four, you can write the paideia, P-A-I-D-I-A. P-A-I-D-I-A, that is the Greek word for little children. And I wanna stay with P's because that's working real well in our list. The paideia, the little children. What about the little children? Here's one of the questions that came in from more than one person. What about children under the age of accountability? Let me ask you, what is the age of accountability? I mean, can anybody give me an age? No. I mean, show me chapter and verse. Well, Jesus said the age of accountability was at 10 and a half. I, no, we don't know. We don't know. All we can do is make the assumption that it's when the heart is able to make that choice. I believe there's an age where a child becomes accountable for their sin choices when they reach that certain point. I don't know, is it seven? Is it 10? Is it 16? Is it like in my case, 56? <laughs> what is the age of accountability? I, no, we don't, and what about infants in the womb? This question is interesting. When the rapture of the church happens, does that mean every pregnant woman on earth suddenly will go, <gasps> Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? I don't know. And in fact, the answer to what about the little children is we can only speculate because the Bible does not anywhere specifically and literally come out and say, this is what happens to children at the rapture. Now, again, any child who says, I believe in Jesus, I'm thinking that's probably just fine. What about the child of non-believing parents? What about the child that's never been told about Jesus, who might later on in life, but hasn't yet even heard? What about all of these kids? And of course, our hearts, and 
I get it. Our hearts want every child saved. We just want to go, okay, they're all going to go up. They're all going to be saved. That's it. Done. We're talking about what scripture says, and we're trying to stick to what the Bible actually teaches. And if the Bible doesn't teach it explicitly, I'm not going to teach it explicitly. What I will do is try and get some indication. And I think we do have some indication related to children. I've told you this recently, and I will keep speaking this as long as I have breath. When we come to unanswerable questions in the scriptures, questions that the Bible doesn't specifically say, here's your answer. The first place you go is to the character of God, the nature of Jesus. That's where you start. If it doesn't say it in the word, I have to step back and go, okay, what do I know of God? What do I understand about his character? Now, if like Ruth and the Moabites, my God was Hamash, we know exactly what he thinks of children. If your God is Molech, we know exactly what that God thinks of children. What about our God? Well, let's be specific. First of all, before we even look at what he says about children, Revelation 15 verse three says, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the lamb. Song of Moses, that's a Jewish song. Song of the Lamb, that's a church song. So this may be a yet another indication of the Jewish people and the church together in heaven, having been caught up together. But together we sing, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. We're gonna sing that. We're also gonna sing, Revelation 19, verse one, John says, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. That's y'all, after we've been caught up, singing hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. It's got a great feel to it, great rhythm. Because his judgments are true and righteous. There is coming a time where if you've ever questioned the goodness of God in your life, you're gonna say, righteous and true. He was right. He was absolutely true. He was faithful and good. And what he chose and what he did and how he called all this thing together, perfect. We're gonna sing that. So that's why we have to start with the nature and character of God. So that being the case, turning your Bibles to the book of Matthew, and we're gonna mostly just stay in Matthew for however long we have left here. How does the Lord feel about children? Matthew 18. Matthew 18, I wanna just throw a few verses out to you. And then we'll get to where I really wanted to be tonight. <laughs> Matthew 18, verse one, follow this with me. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. This is indicative of how God feels about children and perhaps a hint of what's gonna happen when we are caught up. And he called a child to himself and set him before them. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That suggests to me that children are ready to go to heaven. At what age, Rick? I don't know. But the paideia, the paideia or, or the, another word for it is technon, Jesus points, this is what you gotta be like to enter the kingdom of heaven. Suggestion, this little child that he put before them was the kind of model he's talking about, and that little child's probably good to go. He doesn't say that, but that's what I assume. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. I think we know what Jesus thinks about kids, but skip on down to verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven, which means every child has a guardian angel, which is so cool. And I remember back to being a child and how desperately I needed one. So all children have a guardian angel, an angel that is before the Father in heaven, an angel who, I don't know, what is the job? Looking out for the kids? I'm not sure. But don't despise them. They all have them. Verse 11 for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Skip over to chapter 19. Matthew 19, verse 13. Some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Tell you what, that group of children were rapture ready. Keep going. Chapter 21, Matthew 21, verse 15. Interesting how much Matthew had to say about children. But Matthew 21, verse 15 says, the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. They said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? Which tells me that God really likes to hear kids worship, to hear children praise his name. Keep going, Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. I've always assumed that he was just talking about the people of Jerusalem, people who were born in Jerusalem, people who were part of the citizenry of Jerusalem, but he very specifically says, I have so long wanted to gather your children, Jerusalem. And again, what all this goes to is to the heart of Jesus for children, little children, big deal. Remember on Sunday we talked about Ruth, little story, big deal. Little children, big deal to God. So I can't explicitly answer for you what's gonna happen at the rapture of the church to kids of parents who don't believe, to, to little kids who aren't part of church fellowships, who don't necessarily know much, if anything, about Jesus. I can't tell you what's gonna happen explicitly, but implicitly we serve a God whose character is deeply compassionate and loving for kids. He loves children. So my assumption, and I'm just gonna put it that way, my assumption is that the rapture of the church, all children are gonna go. That that sounds like the character of God and even what we've just read through Matthew. I think it's safe to say children are safe in his hands. Until what age? Not gonna get into that because I'm not God. Okay? But let's stay in Matthew. Okay, so another point. Point number five. So we just did the paideia. Point number five, and we're getting back to now the rapture itself. And point number five is the paralambano. The para lambano, P-A-R-A, 
L-A-M-B, like lamb, and then A-N-O. Paralambano. Paralambano. Just write that down, I'll explain. Matthew 24. Now, I am gonna just sit in Matthew 24 for the rest of our time. I'm gonna try and move through it quickly, but I want you to get this. Matthew 24 is the seminal Jesus teaching on the rapture of the church. This is the one that spun me around. This is the one that finally convinced me that this whole rapture theology was legitimate because I had to be convinced. I wasn't raised with it, I told you that. I had to learn this for myself and study it out and look at what are the scriptures say and I had to try and shut my ears to all the noise and all the books written by human beings and listen to what Jesus said. And when I came to this in Matthew 24, this is what changed my mind. Some of you have heard teaching to the contrary of what I'm about to tell you. I'm gonna show you why I think just a literal interpretation and understanding is the right one. But Matthew 24 begins. This is my favorite thing to teach. Those of you going to Israel, you're gonna hear it again when we get there. On the southern steps of the temple, every time we go to the southern steps on one of our tour days in Jerusalem, we sit down on the steps and we look at Matthew 24. And there's a reason. Because Matthew 24 begins, Jesus came out from going from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Check it out, look at it, look at Jesus. I mean, this is Herod's temple now. Herod's retrofit of the second temple and it was gorgeous and it was huge and it had taken decades to build. And they're pointing it out and he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And to this day, many of those stones are in a heap at the bottom of the temple mount. So Jesus said, don't be impressed with this. Well, then he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. So he comes down from the temple, he crosses the Kedron Valley, goes up on the Mount of Olives, he, he sits down there, he's resting, and his disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus is the perfect teacher. He hears three questions. And he answers all three. Question number one. Question number one, when will these things happen? Question number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And question number three, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Three questions. And so Jesus then launches in Matthew 24 to answer all of these questions. He begins in verse four, says, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come out, will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. For all of these things are merely the beginning of birth paying stop right there. Those first eight verses cover AD 70 to present day. Chronologically, Everything Jesus describes in those eight verses has taken place and has increased in frequency and intensity, just like birth pangs. So we've talked about the birth pangs. And if you're following this through, a Jewish Messiah speaking to his Jewish disciple about, disciples about Jewish things answers, begins answering that first question, when will these things happen? And he says, okay, here's what it's gonna look like. And for, eight, or the, for those beginning verses through verse eight, he describes what the world's gonna go through literally for the next 2,000 years, what we have seen historically. 
then they will deliver you to tribulation. And I believe that's Revelation chapter six right there. Verse nine now begins, Jewish people, Israel, you're gonna be delivered to tribulation. You're going into this thing. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another, hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness has increased. Most people's love will grow cold. Do we see hints of all of that right now? Yes. Is what Jesus is describing full-blown right now? No. This is tribulation stuff that he's describing. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So he's talking about a time that's gonna require endurance. And again, Jewish Messiah talking to Jewish disciples. He says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. And multiple missions organizations today use that verse and say, we have to get the gospel out into the whole world before the rapture can happen, before Jesus can come. And I say, wrong, O Mary Lou. Because the Bible is very clear, during the tribulation, there will be massive evangelism going on. Revelation chapter seven. Massive numbers of people who are going to be saved at that time. They will have missed the rapture. They're gonna miss the wedding feast. They're gonna miss all of the goodness of that, being caught up and home with Jesus. They will be in the rapture, but there is still, there is still this move of God to save people, even though they rejected him up to that point. Because God's grace is huge. He's gonna have 144,000 Jewish evangelists running all over the world preaching the gospel. There's gonna be an angel flying in mid-heaven, the book of Revelation tells us, calling out, receive the gospel. There's gonna be two witnesses in Jerusalem preaching for three and a half years that look an awful lot like Moses and Elijah. And people are gonna have the chance to hear and be saved. And then the end will come. So no, it doesn't depend on us to get the job done. It depends on Jesus. Verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, now I'm not doing Daniel tonight, but we will because the abomination of desolation is very clearly in the midpoint of the tribulation. Now we're three and a half years in the tribulation. So Jesus is following a very chronological description here, AD 70 to the tribulation, to now the midpoint of the tribulation. When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, and then he says, let the reader understand. By the way, I don't know if Matthew said that or if Jesus said that. Either way, it's cool. If it was Matthew saying, let the reader understand, then he's stopping to say, hey, pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. If it was Jesus saying, let the reader understand, how much more cool would that be? On the Mount of Olives with the disciples, and he says, let the reader understand. And they're like, reader? What, what reader? Oh, don't worry about it. That wasn't for you guys. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Why Judea? Because we're talking about Jewish people in Judea at the time. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Why? Because it's gonna be hard. And then he says, pray your flight will not be in the winter or on Shabbat. For then there will be a great tribulation. So here's where Jesus makes a distinction. First three and a half years, tribulation. Then this abomination of desolation thing that we will understand before we're done with this teaching series 
And then that kicks off what Jesus refers to, then there will be great tribulation. So it gets even worse in the last half than it was in the first. And he says, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And that verse alone tells us it has to be yet future. For the preterist, which is the person who says all of Revelation took place in AD 70, as soon as the Holocaust took place, that no longer could be the worst thing that ever happened to Israel. Okay? Holocaust took place. We're still looking. There is a time that has not ever been as bad as it's going to be in the great tribulation. And then he says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Someone says, wait a minute, the elect, that's the church. Where'd you get that idea? I'll tell you where that idea comes from. It's called replacement theology. The elect in the Greek, the chosen. Who are the chosen in the scriptures? Israel. A Jewish Messiah is talking to his Jewish disciples about what's going to happen from AD 70 up until now to the very end of the age, coming into the tribulation and then the great tribulation. And for the sake of the chosen ones, those days will be cut short. This is God's love and grace for Israel. Verse 23, then if anyone says, behold, here is the Mashiach. Now we see Christ, but remember, he would have said Messiah. This is very Jewish. Here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe him. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect, the chosen ones. Behold, I've told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. Behold, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. And then he says this, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And by the way, he comes from the east. Jewish thinking would recognize that throughout the Hebrew scriptures, prophecies of the coming of Messiah always say he's gonna come from the east by the way of the east. He's gonna enter the east gate or the golden gate and come into the temple from the east. That's what Jesus is referencing, his return. He says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That sounds interesting, kind of strange. But if you look at, and just note this, Revelation 19, verses 17 and 18, it talks about the uh, great supper for the birds. That's what Jesus is talking about. Because at that time, it will be at the end of Armageddon, at the end of the tribulation, and there's gonna be massive carnage, and God is gonna say, assemble the birds for the great supper, and they are going to feed on the flesh, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And so he goes all the way through these verses and he has answered question number one all the way through verse 28. When will these things happen? He just explained it. And then he moves to question number two, which is what will be the sign of your coming? Verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky, prophesied by Daniel, with power and great glory, 
and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That is the glorious appearing of Jesus. Da, da, da. Here he comes and he sends his angels and he's gathering his people and he has now returned and he answers the question, what's gonna be the sign of your coming? So we have just chronologically gone from right after Jesus ascended going into AD 70 in the fall of Jerusalem and that mess all the way up to present day into the tribulation, into the great tribulation, all the way to the glorious appearing of Jesus. And then he answers the third question. What will be the sign of the end of the age? Verse 32. It's a different question. It's not what will be the sign of your coming. What will be the sign of the end of the age? Verse 32, now, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know the summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. Matthew 24 is chronological all the way through verse 31 because he's answering the first two questions. The third question is not chronological. So now he has stopped the chronology which comes all the way up to his glorious appearing and he's answering that question which is, okay, but what's the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus says, it's the fig tree. Learn the parable of the fig tree. This is what we would call the mega sign. This is the big sign of our generation, the mega sign, the fig tree of Israel. If you've studied this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't, understand that the fig tree throughout the Hebrew scriptures is a symbol of Israel. So when Jesus says, learn the parable of the fig tree, we can know what he's talking about. When its branch has already become tender, it puts forth its leaves, it's blossoming, it's blooming again in the land. Israel is the mega sign of the end of the age. What Jesus is describing here is saying the end of the age won't come until Israel is back in the land. This is why I said to you the previous doctrine of imminence couldn't really be in play until now because Israel had to be in the land before the rapture of the church could take place. And for 1800 and what is it, 1873 years, something like that, Israel was out of the land. Where's Israel now? Well, we're going there in May. It's right back in the land. It's the mega sign. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What generation? This generation, I know we're getting back to the rapture. We're almost there. Hold tight. This generation, a generation in the Bible is anywhere from 40 to 100 years, depending on the teaching roughly 40 years, but up to 100 years because God told Abraham in the fourth generation, your people will come back from Egypt to the land and it was 400 years. So a generation, 40 to 100 years. This generation may refer to those alive at the time Israel declared its independence, May 14th, 1948, which means you can go from May 14th, 1948 ahead well, 40 years, so in 1988, prophecy students were freaking out. And then we got to 89, which was not as good a year. 
40 years, okay, but, but it could be 100 years, 2048. Rick, did you just give us the day and the hour? No, I didn't. I'm just saying if, it, if it's the generation alive that saw Israel reborn in 1948, then 2048 would be 100 years. That's within that generation. But there's another possibility. This generation might also be alive at the time that Israel retook sovereignty over Jerusalem. That was June 7th, 1967. I'm not trying to push it out further. I, I'm, if we're still here in 2048, someone just take me out and shoot me behind the barn. I mean, I'm just done. I'm trying to think of myself, what am I gonna, how old am I gonna be in, 19, in 2048 anyway? But maybe June 7th, 1967, when they stormed the Temple Mount, when the Jews retook Jerusalem, the holy city, Maybe that's when it starts, that final generation. That's a possibility, and some have put that one forward. Okay, so maybe that's this generation. Or this generation, this genos, may refer to the people group of Israel. And it may be Jesus' way of saying, Israel's not gonna pass away before all these things take place. I will preserve my people. So which one is it? Is it the generation of people alive from 1948 forward? Or the generation of people alive from 1967 forward? Or the generation of Israel remaining alive all the way until Jesus comes again? Okay. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But in all cases, the fig tree putting forth its leaves, Israel back in the land, this is the mega sign. This is the big deal. This changed everything for Students of literal Bible prophecy. That is those who take God at his word. When that happened, everybody was spun around and went, wow, it's just what Jesus said. And we are in the last of the last days. The mega sign is undeniable. At this point, through verse 35, Jesus has answered all their questions. Three questions, we went over them, each one. He answered each one in succession. He answered the first two chronologically all the way to the glorious appearing. Then he turns to answer the third one, talking about the fig tree. This is the mega sign. What's the sign of the end of the age? The fig tree. That's the answer to the question. Jesus is very logical in his presentation here. But after all of that, Jesus concludes his teaching at this point with readiness. Look at what he says. Verse 36, but, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. He says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And in those few verses, there's judgment in that. There are gonna be people as clueless here at the end of the age as there were on earth in the days of Noah before the flood, even as the rain started to fall. Huh, that's weird. The old man said something about this. That is serious judgment. The flood came and took them all away. And then Jesus says, and this is, I've told you before, this is what caught me. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. 
And this language is so specific. He says, verse 42, therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. How do we understand this? Because people take it different ways and people say, well, clearly the flood came and took them all away and so one will be taken and the other one will be left. Clearly it's taken into judgment because the people at the flood of Noah were taken away by the flood so they were taken in judgment and Jesus immediately turns around and he says one will be taken, judgment, and one will be left. So it's not the rapture of the church. I totally disagree because you have to listen to Jesus teach it, not the English translators. What do you mean? Let the language lead. Jesus says in verse 39, they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. The word is Iro, and Iro means to cause to cease. Until the flood came and caused them to cease. The context even is, gives us the right usage of that word. But then, and this is the paralambano, there will be two men in the field. One will be paralambanoed, and the other will be left. Two women at the mill. One will be paralambano. It's a different word now. And paralambano literally translates to be received unto. To be received unto. When he's talking about the people of the days of Noah, it'll be like that. Some are just gonna be taken like they were taken in the flood, caused to cease. But, but, two men will be in the field. One will be received unto, and the other one will be left. Two women, one will be received unto and the other one will be left. And I've told you all this before, John 14, three, Jesus said, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Same word, paralambano. So Jesus even gives us the definition of the word. When I learned that, I realized my ears just heard Jesus describe for the first time the rapture of the church being received unto him, caught up, raptured, the paralambano. It is to me one of the most compelling things in scripture. And there is a huge difference in this between Jesus calling out the church, one will be taken, we're talking about being caught up and meeting Jesus in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air versus Jesus setting foot on the Mount of Olives, which is coming down. Very, very different. One is atmospheric, the other one is terra firma, right? One is 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus says, you'll be received unto. I will receive you to myself. We go to be with him. The other one, Zechariah 14, 12, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. One is coming back. Now, time is it? Man. We're going to stop right there. I'll come back to what I have next, to number six next week. Um, Let me remind you of something, then we'll do any questions that you have. Some of these things you've heard especially if you're, if you're a Bible student and you've, and you've been in this and you've looked at this and consider it, I understand that. I have too. And if you have to hear it again, just understand, I have to teach it again. <laughs> Many of us have heard these things and we've looked at these things and we've considered these things. We've listened to the Greek language. We've looked at the words and all this. We have got to keep the sword, the sword sharp. 
And that's why I'm going back over this slowly and meticulously. I could have moved through Matthew 24 a lot faster. I wanted you to get the sense of it. I told Jake earlier this week, I have now taught Matthew 24 nine times in Israel, not including when I've taught it here. And I've taught it in prophecy studies here. I taught it when we were in the Gospel of Matthew uh, several years ago here. So I've been over and over and over and over and over this chapter. What's maybe surprising to you is it took till about the fifth or sixth time we were in Israel when finally when people would ask questions about the chronology, I could answer them. People would ask, we'd be sitting on the southern steps of the temple. People would say, well, Rick, but what about this? And I'd go, uh... Let me get back to you on that. And I go back to my room that night and study. And the next day I go, okay, okay, here you go. So we need to hear this. We need to go over this and be clear about what the scripture teaches. So again, that's, that's why I'm taking my time. I don't apologize for that, but I'm, I'm just saying that's why we're moving slowly through this. Father, I just pray that you will help us to be patient, that you will help us to stay with this because even in this teaching, Lord, I know some of the best stuff is still to come. But Father, I thank you that you're patient with us, that you lay a foundation. Lord, that you gave your word over 1,500 years, and then you invite us to go Genesis through Revelation to lay a foundation, Lord, of relationship that is solid and secure, a level place on which we can stand stability in our times. So I just pray that because you've been so patient with us, you will help us to be patient with you and with your word. And I thank you for it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, do we have any questions tonight or are you all just going? Mark, in the back. And we're gonna do this a little differently. I've asked my my assistant, Vanna White, to take the (laughs) microphone so those of you at home can hear the questions asked. That'll work, right, John? Okay, so you'll hear it at home. So, Mark, go ahead. So what was the world's, the world's reaction to press clergy up to May 15, 1948? And you've made references over the past few years about how the world viewed uh, Israel. Uh-huh. Uh, not great. Israel, on that date, on the date of declaring their independence in, in uh, May 14th, 1948, they specifically, they declared independence there in Tel Aviv and the world um, pretty much turned their back. Immediately on May 15th, five Arab nations invaded Israel and attacked the Jewish people. They were outmanned, they were outgunned, they were out everything and they were going all over the world sending people out trying to get kind of like what, you know, what we're seeing in Ukraine just begging for arms, begging for help, please, please, please. But I will tell you this, of all the world powers, on May 14th, the first one to recognize the sovereignty of of Israel and to call them up and congratulate them on their independence was Harry Truman. So he became one of the very few U.S. presidents who really stood for Israel at a crucial time. That would include, it was Harry Truman, another one that might surprise you that really stood strong with Israel, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and Donald Trump. Those are the four presidents who stood. But besides that, Great Britain, who had what was called the British Mandate over the land at that time, handed it over to Israel. They packed it up and they left and they gave no help. 
And most of the countries of the world, including Great Britain and many others, they said, you know what, we're just gonna wait and see because the Arabs have all the oil and they're probably gonna wipe out the Jews anyway. And we can say, oh, well, we gave you a country, but you lost it. So it, it, was, it was typical world attitude toward Jewish people. Very typical. Um, a lot of anti-Semitism, a lot of people opposed to Israel. And the world was absolutely shocked that Israel won their independence. So... That's a brief answer. If you want to, you know what? Great book to read about that, specifically that event. And it's called O Jerusalem. O Jerusalem. And it's written by a French guy, and I forget his name, but you'll know because you'll see the name and go, that's French. O Jerusalem. Absolutely fantastic. I thought it was a riveting book, and it's the history of exactly what happened. And it's so well written. I read the book hoping that they were going to save Jerusalem. I knew they wouldn't. But the whole way through, I'm like, oh, no, come on, come on, get the supplies up there. Oh, they got the supplies, all right, they're gonna, they're gonna, and then they lost, you know, lost Jerusalem, but they won Israel. And then they got Jerusalem in 1967. So, oh, Jerusalem, if you're interested in those things, fantastic book, check that out. Other questions? Here comes the mic. No, uh, it, it, it's this, this generation, wait, let me go back to it. This generation, Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away, and we use the word pass away to speak of dying. He's, he's just saying this generation will be here. This generation will not be gone. This generation will be here before the, all the way to the end. And so that's why we say, is it the generation of humanity that is here, or is it Israel? Because the word is genos for generation, and it can mean either a span of time, 40 to 100 years, or it can mean a group of people. So it could be either one. And I, my, honestly, my view is it's both. Israel will not pass away because the Bible says they're not going to pass away. And this generation alive at the time of the fig tree will not pass away because Jesus says that's the sign of the end. That's when you know summer's near. Okay? Does that answer your question? Awesome. Yeah, good. Nice and close for you, Jake. Yeah, I, and I, I actually, we were asked the question last week, I'll, I'll answer it again, the, the question of cremation. God is a great microbiologist. So God knows where our, every aspect of who we are is. So um, I used the example last week of the Twin Towers. When they fell, there were uh, you know, nearly 3,000 people in the towers who died and were incinerated in the fires. They didn't even have a choice to be buried or cremated. They were all cremated. So, are, you know, what about them? What about anyone who has ever been lost in a fire? And the reality is cremation and burial, the Bible is, is pretty quiet about that. We know the Jewish history was lay them in a tomb, come back a year later, collect the bones and put them in an ossuary, ossuary and bury the box. And so Christian burial has kind of followed that pattern. 
of buried in a casket. Um, but those who choose to be cremated, there is nothing in scripture that, that says that that's unacceptable versus uh, burial in a casket. So, you know, I, I think it's, I leave it to the individual. I think it's a personal decision that, that someone makes. But God is not hampered by, you know. Well, exactly, yeah, yeah. Now, there'd be a lot less left of us if we died 2,000 years ago because of Twinkies. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, yeah. See, that's, that's a heavy question. I will answer it. Um, what the Bible teaches, all right, is, again, I, I start with the words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is by faith in Jesus that we are saved. Now, prior to Jesus walking the earth, that faith was credited as righteousness. Abraham believed. Abraham didn't know Jesus, but he knew Yahweh. He knew the Father. He knew God. So his faith, Paul tells us, was credited as righteousness. And then when Jesus died on the cross, now that righteousness has been blood-bought, Abraham's good to go. So, so the Old Testament saints who died in faith would go on to be with Jesus. The problem after Jesus died is that now the message in the world is Jesus. So I am not a pastor who believes that Jewish DNA will save you. Because you were born Jewish, because you have Jewish DNA, you automatically are saved. As a matter of fact, Zechariah 13, you can look this up, very specifically says, I'm gonna bring you through the fire. Two-thirds will perish. One-third will be saved. And they will call me their God, and I will call them my people. And when Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved, I believe, my opinion, that one-third is all Israel. That one-third will be the surviving remnant of Israel at the end of the tribulation. All of Israel at that time will be saved and will enter the kingdom because that one-third will all be believing Jews, believing in Yeshua as their Messiah. So right now, you know, and this is, we, I wanna get into, I'm not the judge, God is. I absolutely believe in the grace of God. When an Orthodox Jew dies outside of faith in Jesus Christ, what happens? According to scripture, it's only through Jesus that you're saved. So I, I'm, I let the word of scripture sit out there. Um, but I am not one who believes that just because you're Jewish, you're going to heaven. No, it, it's, you gotta be bought by the blood of the lamb. Christ our Passover has to be your Lord. And so that's, I, mean, I hope that's specific enough an answer Oh, yeah. It is salvation, but that, that's what I'm saying. The plan for the Jews is salvation. It is for the nation of Israel as a nation, as a people group, to be saved. How's he going to see that through? 
he's going to see it through because at the end of the tribulation, there's going to be the surviving remnant of Israel and they will be saved. And the kingdom, what we need to understand about the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, Revelation 20 that talks about that, that's a promise to Israel. God promised throughout the Hebrew scriptures, I am going to give you a kingdom and David, your offspring is gonna sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule over that kingdom. It's never happened. But God made that covenant with David that by the way was an unconditional covenant. It didn't rely on what David or anyone in Israel did. God said, I'm gonna do this. So he has to do that. So he will fulfill that covenant promise to Israel by saving Israel Surviving, living, breathing Israel will, as human beings, enter that millennial kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Um, yeah, so I mean that's, and then they're gonna be the primary population group. There will be others. I mean, that's another study for another time, but there are other nations that will be represented there that will survive to the end of the tribulation and also be a part of that kingdom. But that's my understanding of, of what the scriptures say, that again, it, it's, it comes down to Jesus. Jew or Gentile, your salvation is in the blood of Christ alone. I don't know of any other way. There is no other name given in heaven or on earth by which we must be saved. Peter, a Jewish fisherman, said. It's gotta be through Jesus. So I think it will be through Jesus. that. And then you get into Revelation, you get into the, you know, the, the, people of Israel, the Jewish people who will flee and they will be in a place prepared in the wilderness and they will be protected and the Bible says exactly for three and a half years. That's the last half of the tribulation. I think every last one of them will be saved. They will come to faith in Yeshua. They will understand as a nation, they will understand at that time that Jesus is their Messiah, was their Messiah, come 2,000 years ago and died. In the meantime, any Jewish person who comes to faith in Jesus now is a Christian. Not a Gentile, but a Christian. And so that, you know, we're all saved by the blood of Christ. But I love Israel, and I, I look right now, what about Israel as a nation today? I think we're seeing the pre-fulfillment of God's plan. And I do believe, because Jesus indicates, that is the mega sign that Israel would be back in the land, still as yet unbelieving, kind of like dry bones, but they're there. So everything is prepared for the rest of this to take place. Okay. Other questions? All the way over there. Come on, Vanna. All she has to do is just stand by the letters and go, fleep. I remember years ago listening to Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel. By the way, I, I haven't seen, has anyone seen Jesus Revol Revolution? Is it great? I can't wait to see it. I'm dying to see it. But it's all about Chuck Smith. And so, but years ago, I remember him talking about the rapture of the church. And every time he talked about it, there's such a twinkle in his eye. And you could just see he was living for that. And Chuck died. But Chuck gets to go first. Because the dead in Christ rise first. 
and he has six feet further to go, so right. <laughs> All the way up here, Jake. Well, but they, we want them to hear. Okay. Yeah. All right, here we go. So we were talking about the age of accountability. Uh, and one of the scripture references that I always go to is in Numbers, when the Jewish people, when Israel refuses to go in the land, and God curses that generation, he said, 20 years and above shall not enter the promised land. So is that an indication of what might be the age of accountability? Could be. Could be. That's very interesting, and, and you're right. So I mean, if, you, if you heard that, did you hear that in here? Everybody here? Um, 20 and above. Here's the funny thing. In our American culture, we assume that teenagers are adults, and they are not. They are not even close. No offense, teenagers, any teenagers. They're not yet. We even know cognitive development goes into the early 20s. So that's an interesting thought. Could the age of 20 be God's age of accountability? I'll tell you what, there are an awful lot of teens who still have to figure things out and make up their minds and, and don't get faith. And yet I've also seen a seven, eight, nine-year-old kid know Jesus. So it's like, well, she knew. He didn't. Depends on environment too, though. Well, it also depends on sex because she always tends to know earlier than he does. <laughs> That's why I said I hit accountability at 56. No. Over here. Great point. Thanks, Linda. What, can you give me that verse, Numbers? I just closed it. Well, open it up and find it. I... <laughs> we got time. <laughs> yeah. Is that a rapture question? <laughs> no, I only shook my head. I, I have answer for that. It's, it's probably a longer discussion than I can give you in a brief answer. Um, what, give me again the, the verses specifically you were looking at down at, it was a verse nine, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the flesh. Um, or was it above that? Eighteen through twenty, of Second Peter. Okay, all right. Well, I probably ought to be in the same place you are. That would help. 
18 to 20. Okay, for Christ also died once for all sins, the just for the unjust, they might bring us to God, having put, been put to death in the flesh, but alive in the spirit. We're gonna talk about that next week. In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, okay, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Now, Peter is saying these are spirits that are now in prison. Jesus went and made proclamation to these spirits, Peter says, who are now, still then, in prison. Um, This can easily get confused because there is also teaching where Jesus in the three days between crucifixion and resurrection actually descends and leads out a host of captives. And I believe that is, he is leading out all those who died in faith prior to the cross. Abraham, David, Sarah, you know, go through the list. So that's a good thing and he's shutting down that paradise side of Hades. That's not this teaching. These are the spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah and I think specifically we're talking about fallen angels. I think we're talking about those who are referred to as the sons of God, the Bini Elohim, the sons of God. And Jesus made proclamation to them, you know, basically of of their condemnation. That's a different scenario than the other scenario about spirits who died in faith that he led out. And you see what I mean? This is a big conversation. Because there's a whole lot more than I can give to try and explain, well, why do you think that? Or how'd you get that from... But in short, Peter's talking about spirits who were in prison when Jesus died and he made proclamation to them and they are still in prison when Peter's writing his letter 20 years later. So these are imprisoned spirits who were disobedient and I would say likely very vile fallen angels. That's my opinion. It's Numbers 14.29 that talks about uh, everyone 20 and up, 20 and older. So age of accountability, Bible doesn't say that, but that's, it's very interesting that God looked at Israel that way and considered 20 and up to be adults. Yeah. Any other questions? I don't want to keep you all night. I mean, I would, but I know you don't want to. All right, I'll stick around. We'll be a little, little longer. Yeah, Jake? Got yeah. Jake's got one. <laughs> um, what's your take on tribulation before or off after the God <laughs> And why? I'm not going to give you why because that's another entire study. <laughs> the Gog Magog invasion of Ezekiel. Ezekiel talks about. Um, Ezekiel 38 specifically, following the valley of the dry bones and it gets into this Gog Magog invasion. Does that happen before or after the rapture of the church? One of these nights, uh, if I can figure out how to do it, I would love to give you, I'd love to draw out a timeline um, so that you can follow it because it is actually very easy to follow biblically the timeline of events as described in scripture, one after the other. Um, To make it real simple right now, Gog Magog I am, I am still uncertain on. There are those who say it will happen before we are caught up, that we'll actually see it. It's possible, especially with what's going on 
everything from Russia invading Ukraine to the earthquake in Turkey. I mean, the, the gateway is, is kicked wide open that this could happen. Israel secure in the land. I mean, so much that Ezekiel prophesied that right now we look at it and go, yeah, it's kind of that way. Um, will we see it before? I, I think it's gonna be super close. So we will either see it and then we're gonna be going, but we don't know the day or the hour. And so it's like, I don't know if God would give us that one to say, hey guys, <laughs> you know, pack your bags. Um, or if it will be immediately after the church is caught up. That there are, two, there are two little timing issues when it comes to the rapture of the church that I don't know if I want to get into. One is Gog Magog. The other is the signing of the covenant between Antichrist and Israel. And we will talk about that later because we're going to do Daniel 9 next week or the week after. Um, the other thing in Gog Magog is Ezekiel 39 describes all of the implements of warfare, all of their weaponry that it's going to be piled up and will be burning for seven years. And it's really interesting to me that it's seven years of burning. Well, that's the length of the tribulation. So I'm thinking, boom, boom, yeah. Um, Gog Magog could happen. We could then be raptured at some point very quickly after that. Antichrist rises and signs a covenant. And if you think, by the way, well, that couldn't happen quickly. In this world? I mean, we could be gone, raptured, and within a matter of months, within that same year, a world leader rises to a world in chaos and turmoil, and he's our guy, and they sign that covenant. That covenant starts the clock ticking again. And, and again, we'll get into that. So that's one that I prefer not to say it's gonna be before or it's gonna be after. I think it's just so close. Yeah. You want that to be the last question tonight? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Lord, I pray, bathe us in the word of truth. There's a lot of this stuff that we're talking about, Lord, that's really exciting and really thrilling, and we could just focus on the seemingly thrilling things, but Father, you know what, honestly, I'm gonna ask this right now. I pray that more people will turn out to listen to Ruth than the teaching on the rapture. Because Father, it is your word we need. It is your word of truth that grounds us. And we have discovered over and over here that verse after verse after verse stabilizes our faith. This discussion about the rapture is definitely part of it. And Lord, I am so thankful that you have shown us how clearly embedded it is in our salvation, that moment of salvation and realization as we stand before you, Lord Jesus, and the gospel is completely fulfilled in us in the day of Christ, we all long for that day. And we pray it will come quickly. But we also pray that while it comes quickly, we will be purified and ready and proclaiming the gospel until you come. <laughs> in Jesus' name, amen.